0: Speak softly, loud and hold me warm against your heart. I hear your words, the tender trembling... Welcome, everybody. Another broadcast of Hollywood Godfather podcast. And we have our special guest back with some more information, And I'm going to let Pat introduce him. You all know him. You've been on the show before. And he's probably one of the most exciting guests we have.
1: Okay. Uh, You know, it's been said in in, uh, the land of private investigators that you're as good as your research and your sources. That's what private investigation is all about. And I always appreciate somebody that can do a deep dive into any subject that they're concentrating on. Our guest tonight has been here before. And he is the king. Now, I'm a writer. Uh, I, I don't uh, pretend to be in the same class as our guest, but I am a writer and I admire somebody that can write and do research the way this man can do. Tonight we have uh, a special guest back, Mark Shaw, who's going to impart information to us that's never been uh, released. And uh, I think this is going to be an eye opener for everybody. So without Further delay. I give you, Mr. Mark Shaw from San Francisco.
2: Thank you, guys. I'm I'm honored to be on the show again. The new book is Fighting for Justice: uh, The Improbable Journey to Exposing the Cover-ups of the JFK Assassination and the Deaths of Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen. And the improbable journey of this uh, has to do with uh, uh, how in the world a guy like me from a small town in Indiana nearly flunked out of Purdue University, took six years to get through there. I'm not the smartest guy in the world and all of that, but this will be my sixth book uh, touching on the JFK assassination, Dorothy and Marilyn. And this one's very special. And I want to say right off that there are a couple of things that are important here. You both know that I would not be on your program if if it weren't for this incredible, um, revered, respected, reporter named Dorothy Kilgallen. Uh, For those people who don't know who she is, uh, all I knew when I started out, when I uh, wrote a book about Melvin Belli, uh, Jack Ruby's attorney, was that she was a star panelist on What's My Line television show, every Sunday night on CBS. Um, 10 million people watched that show. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, but in in 1950s and 60s, it was. It ran for 15 years. And I didn't know that much about Dorothy except for that. And then I learned she was a syndicated reporter to 200 newspapers across the country. She had a voice of Broadway column that talked about not only Broadway, but criminal trials and all different kinds of personalities and all of that. And also she had a radio show with her husband, Dorothy and Dick, Breakfast with Dorothy and Dick, listened to by a million people a day. The New York Post called her the most powerful female voice in America. So I ran across Dorothy when I was able to uh, learn that she was at the Jack Ruby trial. She was in the front row. And uh, the reason that she did, I want to go into uh, more about Dorothy for a while here, because I think it's important because every single thing we're going to talk about tonight including what I believe is one of the greatest exposures of government corruption in history, corruption at the Warren Commission, it all revolves around Dorothy. And I'm going to connect her in with that corruption uh, because she knew, actually, and was a good friend of one of the Warren Commission members. So what do we know about Dorothy? Well, she was a college dropout. We know that she uh, decided uh, that she didn't want to go to college. She wanted to be a news report, newspaper reporter like her father, Jim Kilgallen. And, you know, I found some recent information through my research, guys, that Dorothy had actually spent some time in Ireland where her great-grandparents were, and her father, Jim, was also there. And uh, Jim Kilgallen, uh, you know, when William Randolph Hearst, who's a big name back then, was asked to named the reporters that he had the most respect for in his life. He named Jim and Dorothy Kilgallen. And, and, you know, that was that's really quite a compliment, as you can imagine. But Dorothy began as a cub reporter at the New York Journal American, which was one of the big newspapers at the time. And in the book, I found all kinds of new information about her. You know, uh, one of the women said when she when she walked through the uh, door the first time, they thought she was uh, a going to you know on her way to school (laughs) she was that raw and yet she started going on and you know one of the first things that one of the reporters said to her if you're going to be a reporter here you've got to know how to look at dead bodies so they sent her to the morgue and the account that I have by the editor says get accustomed to the sight of death if you're going to be used any use to this paper So she had to go to the uh, morgue and look at uh, bodies where there was suicide involved. And on the first day that she covered that, uh, the autopsy report, you know, covered with, you know, uh, horrid photographs and everything else. The reporter said she was about to faint since her facial features were as pallid as a nearby corpse. To the rescue came a stick of gum. And apparently the sugar intake saved Dorothy from hitting the cement floor face first. Wow. So when we talk about what evidence she uncovered, all the way through uh, the JFK assassination to the Warren Commission uh, corruption, that's that's where she started. And you know, she she got a big break when she covered the uh, Charles Lindbergh baby kidnapping case. Now remember, in those days, women were not supposed to be in the car behind, you know, in the back seat of the car. They were supposed to be in the car behind. Uh, all almost all of her rival reporters you know, were, were men. Um, uh, Damon Runyon, Walter Winchell, big names from the past and all of that. Um, and so, you know, she she had to begin by overcoming those kinds of obstacles. Uh, the editor also is quoted as saying, you've got Jim Kilgallen's kid, go easy on her. She's just out of the convent. You huh. know, she was just as green as could be. And you know,
0: Walter Winchell, easy, Mark, What's that? Walter Winchell introduced me to her at the Copa Lounge.
2: Oh, my God. See, I sh- that's got to be in the book. Why didn't you tell me that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know what I mean, I met her several times. I wasn't impressed with her. But, you know, she was uh, so well re- revered by all of them. Oh, and, she uh, sure was. And, and there's one yeah.
2: story I like, and, and apparently, I, I, you know, I confirm my research just like you guys do. And I know, uh, um, uh, you know, that that's important to you. Uh, at one particular point, she was standing outside Sing Sing Prison there in New York City, covering uh, the um, release of a, of a gangster who had just been released on on parole. And apparently, according to the article that I read, uh, a man walked by and she was confronted by him he, because of the article she had written about his sister. And the article says before Dorothy could pass, he stuffed a gun in her in her face But somehow, by her not screaming or moving away, the man lowered the gun and fled. Later, she told a colleague, I fully expected to die and couldn't move because I was too scared to do so. You know, um, she was gutsy, you know, and I think you would agree with that, uh, Gianni. She was gutsy. She was always, you know, there's even a story of uh, how she how she wrote her articles. The first article she wrote, the uh, editor reports, he sent it back she sent it again. He sent it back five times until she got it right. And and her father had given her a great lesson. When she asked him what's the most important thing about a reporter, he said, to tell the truth. And that's what Dorothy learned. That's how she became such a woman of integrity. Uh, I even found other incidents of interest about her. Uh, For instance, uh, uh, many people have said Dorothy wasn't a beautiful woman. Well, she wasn't. But she had that power, you know, and and at one point I got a kick out of it because I found an article in one of the Irish magazine, Princess Best Groomed Woman, and that was Princess Margaret. But guess who made the list? Dorothy <laughs> Kilgallen. And so this is this is the woman. Oh, also in this story, when she died in 1965, set ten thousand people um, were at that funeral. Ten thousand people for a reporter, if you can imagine. And a a woman said, uh, this woman named uh, Betsy said, you know, I know a story about Dorothy. Nobody else knows. She brought my baby out of a burning building. The building I lived in caught on fire. Miss Kilgallen was across the street and she heard the sirens. She went into the building in her beautiful white and sequin dress and took my little baby, wet diapers and all, and carried him out of the building. Now that's Dorothy Kilgallen.
1: You know, Mark, if I can interrupt you for a second, you're talking about how many people showed up for her, uh, her funeral. That's a tremendous number, then, now, and in the future. And when you, uh, when you started to introduce her, you talked about the biggest reporters of the time, and you mentioned Walter Winchell. You know how many people showed up at his funeral? No. None. Is that right? But one person showed up for his funeral.
0: That's interesting.
1: He was universally yeah. hated. Oh, not,
0: not by Frank Costello. I'm surprised Frank didn't show up. Did he <laughs> die before Frank or after Frank?
1: I don't know, but I, he he died, I think, in the late '60s. I, I'm not sure, but anyway, uh, I I read an extensive biography on him a few years ago, and uh, the theme of the book was uh, the the amount of vitriol uh, that was directed towards him. No one liked the man. He was just a rotten bastard. No one no one liked him. And you know, I liked be- him. I
0: I had pleasures of seeing him constantly. He was always at the Copa Lounge. Oh yeah. And and um, I I mean, maybe because of who I was, just a kid, but right. I really liked the guy. In fact, you know what's so funny? As we read all of the stuff and all the stuff you've given us to read, Mark, it's I knew Mark Sinclair too.
2: <laughs> oh yes, I know you did from the beauty salon.
0: Yeah, and I was right. I was I worked at Lily Dachet as a shampoo boy right. for him and Kenneth, which is uh-huh. so bizarre. I, I'm such from a different world, and here you know we're talking about them. And when they used to send me to the barbers late at, at nine nine fifteen uh-huh. at night to get flowers for the table, and that and they were uh-huh. like Grace Kelly and Audrey Hepburn to bring back to the Copa because I would pay the, the room monitor at night. Because they had to be in by nine and all their mothers thought, you know, they were in their, their bed and they they wanted to go out and meet Walter Winchell because he could make him a star. And he oh, did.
1: Absolutely. A very powerful man. Most powerful reporter in the United States. But just goes to show you the difference between the, between Walter and Dorothy.
2: Yeah. You know, uh, so many uh, people and, and I'm sure listeners to your podcast watchers will get in touch with me. Uh, I didn't know what crowdsourcing meant until a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to appear at the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco on December 1st. And when they put the description of my lecture up there, they said he's a magnet for co- crowdsourcing. And, uh, and I didn't know what that meant, but I looked it up. Uh, and And basically, it says if you put information out there of some sort, then you're going to get feedback from people. And it's going to embellish on that information that you had. And, and I am the king uh, or whatever of, of crowdsourcing, because, for instance, Johnny's just telling me things that I'll probably want to include in any more material that I write at some point with his permission. So well, that's me. what's happened with Dorothy, because so many people around the world have said, I wish we had a reporter with integrity like Dorothy today. And that if you go to the um, Dr. Sam Shepard case, let's look at that one, you know became the fugitive movie. My favorite photograph of her is on the Dorothy Kilgallen story.org. She's standing in the middle of the courtroom there and here's 20 or 30 reporters from all over the world in admiration of her looking at Dorothy. Dorothy was, you know, the queen of, of journalists at that particular point. And yet, as we'll find out when the JFK assassination happened, they never listened to her. I don't want to let this go without just reading because one of the reading some of her writings for quickly, because that was her blessing. If I could write as well as Dorothy Kilgallen, um, you know, did, I would have had a number of bestsellers instead of just the reporter who knew too much. Listen, listen to this. This was her description of Jack Ruby when she first met him at the trial. Jack Ruby's eyes were as shiny brown and white bright as the glass eyes of a doll. He tried to smile, but his smile was a failure. When we shook hands, his hand trebled on mine ever so slightly by the heartbeat of a bird. I went out of that, oh, uh, I went out of that courtroom, uh, empty courtroom, wondering what I really believed about this man. And if you look at all of her writings in their columns and everything else that she wrote, you know, she she put us in there. She put us in the ruby trials, She put us in the Dr. Sam Shepard uh, trial in the uh, uh, baby kidnapping case uh, and and lesser cases as well. She was so visual with her writing and uh, hopefully she's helped me in terms of improving my writing. And when we talk about the Warren Commission corruption being exposed on your program, frankly, for the first time, uh, we're gonna be able to take you inside the hearings because I've got a witness who was right there when all of that happened. But that's what Dorothy's gift was. She could, and I think that's why she was so popular with her writings because it was so visual what she wrote. Okay, let me see. Um,
0: it's funny because now you mentioned in Jack Ruby, and and I myself met Jack Ruby several times because because I was going. Why am I
2: not surprised? To,
0: well, I was going to Texas for for oh, yes, that's Chicago. Right, Hello. That's right. <laughs>
2: yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to get into that if we can, please. So that's Dorothy Kilgallen. And what I think we ought to do then is to really look at um, what what were some of her accomplishments. Well, the queen died not too long ago. Right. Queen of of England. Right. Dorothy Kilgallen was in England and covered the coronation. She got a Pulitzer Prize winning nomination for that. And this article talks about uh, it's by The New York Post. It was drizzling in the morning of blank, 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 as Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip rode up Broadway, receiving a soggy welcome from the city of New York. Behind them came a procession of limousines jammed full of city officials, statesmen, and dim- diplomats in undignified congestion. Be- be- behind these came another limousine, and in the rear rear re- re- seat of which, in lonely spender, sat the sole passenger, Dorothy Kilgallen. You know that was that was she was able not only to cover the coronation, but then what I found out that's new in this book is that Dorothy Kilgallen ended up getting a scoop, and that scoop was the Queen of England let her go uh, let Dorothy go with the Queen to a beauty parlor. Queen Elizabeth gets her first permanent. Now you talk about trust. (laughs) Okay, trust. Uh, You know, uh, Queen Elizabeth of England had a permanent wave today, the first she's had since she became queen. She was tied up in clamps and pads for some two hours at the palace as beauticians at Emile's. The royal hairdresser worked marvelously over her majesty in preparation for the coronation. Nobody else got to do that. Dorothy Kilgallen was there. And here's one I think that'll blow your mind. It did mine. A guy got in touch with me, another one of those crowd guys, and he told me about the fact that guess who was responsible for Puff the Magic Dragon, which was first a poem and then a, um, uh, first a poem and then, you know, a song, right? Yeah,
1: Peter, was it Paul, Peter and Paul and Mary. Mary. Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah. Guess who was responsible for uh, uh, telling people that the, that the poem and the song were all about drugs.
1: I bet it wasn't Walter Winchell.
2: <laughs> it certainly wasn't. It was Dorothy Kilgallen. And the owner, the, the poet and the author, Lenny Lipton, just died recently. And he really used to get upset because he said that that song and poem had nothing to do with drugs until Dorothy Kilgallen wrote an article in Newsweek, somehow or another, uh, alleging that that was what it was all about. How
1: about that, huh?
0: I mean, that's amazing. Well that that
1: that that story or that uh, rumor or that myth or whatever you want to call it still uh, lingers today. That's "Puff uh, yeah. the Magic Dragon" is a uh, is still believed to be a drug song.
2: Absolutely. Well,
1: I mean, there's Dorothy is, is the one. I don't know how she found
2: out. I've never found found that she uh, used the evil weed or anything. <laughs> but anyway. So the other thing that people ask, and one of the things that I do in this book, The Improbable Journey, is in the first few chapters, let people know what led me up to becoming uh, a reliable person, a reliable journalist, investigative reporter, and author who could cover the JFK assassination. And one of the first things that I was interested in is just something plain. How in the world did Dorothy Kilgallen get so interested in JFK's death? Okay? Mm-hmm. Well, I found articles this time, uh, and and some and, and one even one video, who taught uh, by a, a CBS producer named Martin Swing, uh, who worked on "What's My Line" and some other CBS show, and he recalls the night he and Kilgallen returned from a Broadway opening and were sitting in her office. The phone rang, he said, and was very late, one thirty in the morning. It was Ted Sorensen, who you remember. Sure. Special counsel to the president, no small potatoes. They were talking, and I heard Dorothy say, oh, really? Say hello to him, too. Jack Kennedy had walked into the room, asked who Soren's was talking to, and when he learned it was Dorothy, said, say hi for me. Another account is when uh, you, you went to the Stork Club, Gianni. Uh, oh, yeah. You remember? Uh, Bob Bach, who was a, uh, Dorothy's best friend, said at the, at the Stork Club, I watched with a mischievous thrill as Jack Kennedy, a young senator out late with someone other than his wife, touched base with Dorothy. Hello, Dorothy said. Do you remember when we played charades at your home? And he was at party parties at Dorothy's home. But the kicker there, guys, was when uh, Pierre Salinger invited Dorothy and her son, Kerry, who was in the third grade of the White House. And uh, in the library, Pierre Salinger had JFK came come in. He made a big fuss over little Carrie and the letters he brought from his third grade classmates. He gave him a PT-109 pen, pen and all of that. When she watched JFK's assassination and learned about it, uh, what did she write? She wrote, "I what I remember is a tall man stooping over a little boy from the third grade praising for his letters. That's who died on November 22nd. And that was the link. That was the bond between them. And once she watched Jack Ruby shoot Larry Harvey Oswald, she didn't buy that at all. She didn't buy what was going on there. And she was off to Dallas. She was off to the trial. And that's what uh, that's where everything gets picked up. When I found out about that, I was just amazed that she was there. I never knew she was there. Wow. And yet she, out of 400 reporters, Gianni, you'll be interested in this, 400 reporters, she's the only one that interviewed Jack Ruby.
0: And, well, Jack and really, knew her. I mean, Jack knew the relationship, and she did also with Costello and, him, and her.
2: She did. Uh, I don't know if you know, but uh, Jack Ruby's favorite program was What's My Line? They, they watched that in the Carousel Club. So <laughs> when she was at the trial, she said to her co-counsel, Joe Con- Tonahill. Yes, I want to talk to Dorothy. And then he she got that interview and that launched this 18 month investigation that she had uh, that we can talk about what she found and all that kind of thing. And then, of course, led up to her death. But you're right, Gianni, you, you can connect all of these people in there because what did Dorothy do uh, first thing after interviewing Jack Ruby? She didn't go to Cuba and look into the Cuban, you know, possibility of killing JFK. She didn't uh, stay in Dallas and look into LBJ. She didn't go to Washington, D.C. and look into the military complex. She went to New Orleans.
0: That's right. And the
2: man that she was, you know, she didn't she didn't really the, the first the first column that she wrote, Oswald file must not close. And then she wrote all these columns basically questioning J. Edgar Hoover shouting Oswald alone, Oswald. Dorothy was right, as we will see. Especially,
0: oh, we know that. I know that personally firsthand. I bumped yeah, into she death. was right,
2: but nobody listened to her. And that's one of the relevance of what my research is. We need to ask questions today. They didn't ask enough questions back then about the JFK assassination, about Marilyn Monroe's death, about Dorothy's death. We, we can't, you know, if it's politicians especially, we can't take their word for anything. We can't go to Wikipedia and, and believe all that's on there. Uh, we want to look well, for yeah, people but, uh, of know, truth who, like Dorothy Kilgallen because know, she gave the us the The problem
0: is, as you know, it, it, everything is so politically motivated oh. now. I mean, you're not going to get anything done. Unfortunately, it's going to get so frustrating. And I, I, I would just I I apply fly on the wall.
2: That's right. I think she would throw up over the coverage that we get today. Where's Walter Cronkite when you need him? I mean, oh. somebody with some some class and integrity to them. So she went to New Orleans. Uh, she was there. Mark Sinclair, who you knew, was with her yeah. when she got there. He, oh, he the traveled hotel. with him. What's that?
0: He traveled That's with him. Right.
2: And so she had him to come with her to take care of her hair and everything. He went to the hotel. And about two hours later, whoever she met spooked her. And she called him at the hotel and said, you go back to New York City and don't you tell anybody you were here. And, and I have that on recordings at the Dorothy dot org where people can listen to Mark Sinclair's version of what happened there. So what did she do? Whatever she found there, she came back to New York City and she made a huge mistake, just like Marilyn Monroe did when she said she was going to the media about her affairs with Robert and Jack Kennedy and matters of national security. They told her all of that. She was a blabbermouth. I'm going to crack the JFK assassination investigation wide open. I know it wasn't a, a conspiracy. I know I know there's a conspiracy to kill JFK, a plot to kill. She started talking about all that. She even did that to her attorney, Mort Fib- Farber, by the way, Gianni, who was also Frank Costello's lawyer. That's all intermangled in there. And I don't know if you know, but she actually met with Frank Costello in Little Italy at one point. And, and Mark Sinclair tells the story. He gave her a diamond bracelet. All right. Because they were really good friends. They'd been at the at the uh, at the um, P.J. Clark's and all of that. And uh, she said it was so big she couldn't wear it. So they made it into a necklace. So she was involved in all of that that was going on at that particular time. So then we get to the point where Dorothy Kilgallen, what did she know when she was going to write this book for Random House? The publisher was who? You know, Bennett Cerf, who was one of her uh, panelists on What's My Line, she was going to write the book for Random House, and it was going to be a tell all book about the JFK assassination and all of that. The question is what did she know? Well, before I wrote this book and researched this book and found this incredible, shocking information, I was on a a, a radio program the other night, and Mark, uh, this guy who I have a lot of respect for, said to me, you know, uh, Mark, I I don't know exactly what you you can tell us about the corruption right now. We'll do that later. But it sounds to me like that what you've uncovered is as important as the Pentagon papers or the Nixon tapes or Snowden's release of the NSA documents, because this this is corruption at the Warren Commission, government corruption at its very worst. And,
1: and Mark, so what did I do? Mark, well, I knew Mark, that. Mark. What's that? Can I interrupt you for a second, please? Of course. We'll uh, leave that as at, at a cliffhanger. Uh, Gianni, I think it's time to do a commercial.
0: Okay, we'll be right back. We have to make a few dollars, Mark. Perfect. <laughs> Don't <laughs> anybody you. go anywhere. You can understand how important this is. Yeah. We'll be right back.
1: This is Patrick Piccarelli, co-host of the Hollywood Godfather podcast. I'm also the president of Condo Security and Investigations, a full-time investigative and security firm established in 1988. We are located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with worldwide affiliates. Our business paradigm is simple, to provide the most professional services possible while maintaining an ethical standard and client satisfaction. Our areas of expertise include criminal and civil investigations, asset searches, surveillance, executive protection, question documents, background investigations, computer forensics, polygraphs, and many other services. Our staff consists of former law enforcement professionals with hundreds of years of combined experience. Your initial consultation is free. Visit our website, www.condorprivateye.com, or call 724-396-2808. Thank you. Okay, we're back.
2: Well, the whole, the whole situation then with Dorothy in uh, in uh, as, as the fall of 1965 comes along. What do we know that she knows? She's got Jack Ruby's version of what happened. Now, I have in the new book, uh, never been in a book before that I know of, Jack Ruby's lie detector test and Jack Ruby's psychological exam. And if you look at those and also him saying that he just happened by the basement at the the Dallas Police Department, and you know, oh my and, God. And, that. and then I was able to get in, and I, I mean, every, there are people out there who are so stupid that they still believe that that happened. Well, we have an account from a from a, a parking lot manager who says that he overheard Ruby saying on the telephone, "I will be there when uh, Oswald's going to be transferred." At he least was
0: told another, to be there. Some more
2: of these
0: two hours before the transfer, he was Absolutely. told to be there to take out the just be out the Oswald. Stuff.
2: crazy stuff so anyway um you know uh, that's what happened so Dorothy what does she know well she knows what Ruby told her and she went to New Orleans because uh and I have proven and and I think you I hope you agree in in the poison patriarch and the reporter who knew much too too much you have to look at motive Uh, I'm sure that's what uh, Patrick does with his investigations and I did it as a criminal defense lawyer and when I write my books I never, I never had any, uh, you know, experience with writing. I never had any classes or anything. I learned how to write books by talking to juries. When I was a criminal defense lawyer, when I worked with Lefley Bailey, when I handled high-profile cases, when I was a network legal analyst for Tyson's case and, and um, Kobe Bryant's and O.J. Simpson's, I talked to the, to the readers as to, as to what I found out, and in this particular situation... You know, I was I was I knew what Dorothy knew at that particular time because she got that information from Ruby. And then she went back and said she was going to crack the investigation right right open. And what I believe from my from my research, she realized a a, a really common sense situation. This was a mafia hit of JFK. And how did she realize that? In 1960, Joe Kennedy, using his mafia buddies, helped fix the 60 election. By calling in, Jean I was Tom
0: a part and, of that. I was, and, I was traveling right. state to state. It was well, you clear.
2: should have been arrested then, for sure.
0: I it. didn't know what it was about.
2: Oh <laughs> yeah, sure. We've heard, we, yeah, we've heard that kind of. I was, about. I was six. I, I had no idea old. that this was going <laughs> on. Anyway, so what happens? Well, Joe makes this deal with the devil. You guys, you bad guys, you know, and. Uh, Giancana, Marcelo Costello, all these guys, you know, we'll leave you alone if we get in the White House, if you help us. So they help them win the election. They beat the hell well, out of Well, that was
0: all because Except- he promised, Joe promised, that the first duty his son would do is invade Cuba and give him the casinos back. I know well, that were, firsthand.
2: That, that was another part of the, 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 uh, the deal. But basically, they were going to leave him alone. Well, what does what Bobby do? Bobby's the runt of the litter in the Kennedy family. He oh. wants to show he's important. And so he deports Car- Carlos Marcelo to the wilds of Guatemala, where he almost dies. I and know. then this guy comes back to the United States, gets in somewhere or another, and the revenge is on his mind. Nick Pelleggi, who gave a nice endorsement for this book that's on the cover, um, you know, was telling me, you know, Marcello was Sicilian. It's all about revenge. You can't mess around with those guys. And so what happens? Well, uh, Marcello wants to kill Bobby Kennedy, strangle him to death. But if he does that, he knows that JFK will come after him with everything the government has. So what does he do? They orchestrate JFK's death. Bobby is powerless, which is exactly what they wanted. So that was the common sense uh, theme that Dorothy had in her mind. So she's going to plop that into her book, and that's going to expose problems with Hoover and and Marcello and all these people. Her enemies are, are gathering. There are more enemies all the time. And then she is able, as you may remember, with a real exclusive at the time. And I never knew how she got this information until the research for this book and my whistleblower who was a legislative assistant to a Warren Commission member and was there in the hearings. And you'll, I think, be absolutely shocked when you hear what he has to say that the member told him. But she was able to get the Jack Ruby testimony at the Warren Commission before it was supposed to be released. And she went ahead and, with the permission of her her, uh, her publisher, put that on the front page of the New York Journal-American. And there was a big scandal about it. And J, and J. Edgar Hoover was all upset. And I love this visual. He sent two of his goons, his agents, over to, his, her, to Dorothy's home. She doesn't want a lawyer. He sits, They sit there, and you can see these, these guys. These, I, like, I like to think they're six feet tall and about 200 pounds, muscular and everything. And here's little Dorothy on the couch, and they're interrogating here. And I've got in the book what she said uh, to them. And it, it, it chills me when I say it, because this was what Dorothy was all about. How did you get those materials? How did you get that testimony? Um, it, it was a friend of long standing. I am not about to tell you who it is. I'm not going to tell you from what city they came. I'm not going to do. I'm not going to do. And I would rather die than give you my source. That should be on her tombstone, because that was this woman. And Hoover was just as upset as you can possibly imagine because it made him look stupid. He was in charge of the Warren Commission, as you as you know.
0: Well, I know. And they were very happy that he was because Costello talked to him daily. I mean, we'll
2: we'll talk about that, that uh, connection for sure. So Dorothy knows that and she knows what Ruby told her and everything else. So I don't know how much time we have in this in this particular program, but
1: we have about uh, uh, 10 more minutes.
2: All right. So let me just lead up to what happened here with regard to uh, the shocking evidence we're going to give, because it will take the entire uh, time that we're going to have left. All right. So I've got all that information and I'm very happy with it. And I'm going to put it in this particular book, along with all the other. I've also got, you should know, in the book, uh, I found in 1970, it, it get more into the Kennedy mindset. In 1973, a book was, called, uh, was written called The Kennedy Neurosis by a well-known writer and psychologist of the time. And she talks about the Kennedys in there. And she talks about the fact that they were mirror images of Joe Kennedy. They were mirror images in terms of having very few morals or ethics. They were mirror images of Joe running around with every skirt that he could possibly find. Uh, They wouldn't do anything without Joe's approval. It's so enlightening in terms of who the Kennedys were. And as you know, uh, it, that's easily proven by, you know, Joe Kennedy, what, what Jack Kennedy say, if I don't have sex uh, every day, I get a headache. You know, it's those kinds of comments by them. And I have right. a couple really good stories in the book with regard to at one particular point, this columnist, uh, not Dorothy, but somebody else actually catches Joe at one of his secretary's apartments, lives next door. And she she finds out that, uh, you know, he's over there with her and she takes a couple of photographs. And the next day, she puts a note on his door saying, I have this information. Leave this woman alone or I'm going to do this. She encounters him on the street. He puts his finger in the, in her nose and says, you want to work in this town ever again? Don't you do that. Don't you do that. Well, basically, she did. She went ahead and sent it to Ben Bradley at the Washington Post, who was a very close uh, friend of the Washington, uh, of the Kennedy's. That picture never appeared. The story never appeared.
0: Of course.
2: They, they, they were not going to do that with the Kennedys. The other one is, I don't know if either one of you know it or not, but Jack, uh, um, uh, Robert, or uh, JFK, was actually married when he married Jack, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy.
0: No, first I'm hearing no, I that. didn't know that. Wow.
2: Yeah. Well.
0: Where's they- the proof of that?
2: What, what What is interesting is sometimes information is out there that I find from some other authors, but I always watch who that author is. I've always felt like that Seymour Hirsch was darn pretty darn credible with what he found yeah. out about things. And what I liked about him what, is what he what I do is I confirm information that I get. Well, he had a story about the fact that um, uh, he has some things about Maryland. But basically, he, he came up with the with the knowledge that just Oh, not, not too long before Jackie uh, and uh, uh, JFK married Jackie. Uh, Jack Kennedy fell in love with a, a, a Palm Beach Beach uh, socialite. Uh, her name was Dury Malcolm. Called by the media at that particular time, is this JFK's secret first bride? <laughs> and Hearst basically wrote in his book, uh, oh, The Dark Side of uh, Camelot, uh, that um, uh, JFK loved this this uh, Durial and wanted to obviously sleep with her, but she uh, there's an account in here. She told her sister and she told her father that uh, she would not sleep with Jack Kennedy in, in, unless he married her. And so they went down to the Palm Beach uh, 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 courthouse and they got married. And it was never annulled. What Joe Kennedy did was go down and destroy all the records and everything else like that. Well, that wasn't enough for me. I wasn't going to report that until I found a CIA, an FBI document that talks about the fact that that marriage took place. Oh, wow. And there are records that they found somewhere or another uh, that that, that uh, confirm it. And uh, the... Uh, it sounds uh,
0: like one of my marriages, right, last week.
2: Very well could be. <laughs> And uh, in this, the here, here's what it says: Copies of the material are attached here too, and will be noted. In the left-hand column, page 884, there is listed a member of the family, 11th generation, Dury Kerr Malcolm. Pointed out the state uh, out in the statement is contained therein that the third husband of Dury was John F. Kennedy, son of Joseph Kennedy, one-time ambassador to England.
0: That's right.
2: So that that was interesting to me, because what it really shows is to me how Joe Kennedy was the king of the cover ups.
0: Oh, my God. He could yeah.
2: Cover up everything that went on with the Kennedys. And as you will see, he and Bobby worked their asses off to cover up the truth about the assassination um, and, and who was responsible at the at the Warren Commission using Kotzenbach, the, the uh, assistant attorney general to do so. So that's where we are. We know Dorothy probably knew about all of this. Now at that time, columnists uh, were very reticent to to talk about dirty laundry with uh, with any of the um with any of the politicians. And so she probably wouldn't have printed something like that, I don't believe. So now we get to the point where let's talk about the whole situation with the Warren Commission. And you know, for many people, this is old news. This is 1960. This is 60 years ago, uh, I think it's 60 years ago from what I think is JFK's finest hour when he basically in many ways saved the world from nuclear uh, from a nuclear holocaust by backing down the, the Cubans. And, right. and yes, we're, we're 60 years from then, but it's important. It's history. And, and what we're going to talk about is the corruption at the Warren Commission. Well, how did I feed into that? Well, first of all, I had to learn. I must admit, and and I, I'm not real, you know, proud of it or anything. I had to learn more about the Warren Commission, of being convened. What happened there? Well, it was Executive Order eleven eleven thirty signed by President Johnson on November 29th, nineteen sixty three. Now, what? Seven what is days it? later. At seven days later, and uh, the commission was directed to evaluate all the facts and circumstances surrounding the assassination and the subsequent killing of the, of the alleged assassin. Now watch closely, because we're going to see that all they do ever is focus on Oswald and to report its findings and conclusions to the president. On December 12th, they started issuing the subpoenas. Who was appointed to the uh, Warren Commission? Maybe Maybe you remember, maybe you don't. United States Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren, Republican Congressman and future President Gerald Ford, former CIA Director Alan Dillis, who by the way had been fired by JFK, Georgia Senator Russ, uh, Richard Russell, Representative Hale Boggs of Louisiana, former President and Presidential Advisor John McCloy and Kentucky Senator John Sherman Cooper, each known despite political party affiliation for their conservative political views. The work of federal agencies bolstered their efforts, the commission's efforts, including the Federal Bureau of Investigation the Secret Service, with the former conducting, according to the report, more than 25,000 interviews and re-interviews of persons having information of possible relevance to the investigation.
1: Uh, Mark, can I ask you a question? Uh, Wasn't all inspector on the commission?
2: No, he wasn't on the commission, but he was an advisor to the commission.
1: Okay, uh, his name is always being bandied about, Uh, I think, probably because he survived the longest out of all of them.
2: I think that's right. Also. And then Lee Rankin was also uh, an advisor to the uh, to the Warren Commission. I think he was the attorney for the Warren Commission. We'll talk about Spectre a little bit later, because my whistleblower uh, worked for Arlen Spectre at one particular point. So. What what was I looking for? I'd never looked in. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed as a researcher that I never looked into the Warren Commission very much. Nobody ever did. CBS, for God's sakes, I found out, did a four part investigation of the Warren Commission. 1973, I think it is or whatever. A few years later, they never got into any of the of the of the collusion of the Oswald alone obsession of any of that kind of thing. None of the authors at that time did. None of the journalists, nobody else did. Dorothy even didn't do so after it happened. Everybody missed it. They just accepted that Oswald alone theory that made very little sense, if any at all. So what happened there? Well, I started to look into the Warren Commission and the first thing I found was gold. Although what I found later was more gold. And that that was uh, audio tape, conversations between lbj and j edgar hoover there's two different sets of them the first one was uh on uh no uh november 29th as a matter of fact when they established the commission with these members it was lbj and hoover talking about who they wanted on the commission and it's, Who it's they can so, control
0: on the commission.
2: <laughs> that's right. And it was so enlightening because I, I, if you want me to, I can read a couple of those before we have to take another break. All right. Right. Here's one of them. Uh, the secretary says J. Edgar Hoover on extension 2192. LBJ, uh, J. Edgar Hoover, are you familiar with this proposed group that they are trying to put together on this study of your report and other things Two from the House, two from the Senate, somebody from the court, a couple of outsiders. Hoover, I haven't heard of that. I've seen reports on Senate Investigation Committee that they've been talking about. LBJ, well, I think we don't want to have. I just want to get by with filing your report, which obviously was the whole Oswald alone situation. Hoover, I think it would be very, very bad to have a rash of investigations. LBJ. Well, the only way we can stop them stop is probably to appoint a high level investigation to evaluate your report and put somebody that is pretty good on it and that I can select out of the government and tell the House and the Senate not to go ahead with the investigation. They didn't want the Senate in the House. They didn't want Texas doing an investigation. They didn't want anybody else doing an investigation, as will become clear as we get a little bit further. J. Edgar Hoover, yes. LBJ, because we get a bunch of television going and that's going to be bad. Hoover, it'll be a three ring circus. And then they talk about the members. What do you think about Alan Douglas, uh, Alan Dulles? That's LBJ. Hoover, I think he's a good man. What about John McCloy, American lawyer, diplomat, banker and presidential advisor? Well, oh, I'm not enthusiastic about him. I knew him back in the uh, down I knew him back in the in the Patterson days, down the Secretary thing. He's a good man, but I'm not so certain as the matter of publicity he might seek. They don't want anybody talking to anybody. right? All right, I guess Bob uh, started in the House, I felt pretty good about and Jerry Ford in the House. Try to get Dick Russell uh, from Georgia and maybe Cooper in the Senate. Um, yeah, I think so. Uh, Russell's an excellent man. Yes, he is. Uh, but we but I don't know about Jerry Ford. Uh, how about Cooper? I thought he might Cooper might look after the liberal group, even though he's conservative. Cooper can. Oh, yeah. Uh, they, they would think he's a pretty judicious fellow. Now, you're going to hear my uh, hear from my whistleblower who says the reason they put Cooper on there was because how respected he was as a as a senator. And I have some tribute to him. I wouldn't, uh, LBJ, I wouldn't want Senator Jacob Javits. Oh, no, 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 says Hoover. Uh, None of those, he plays the front page. We don't want him. Cooper's kind of border state. It's not south, it's not north. That's right. Do you know Ford from Michigan, LBJ asked. I know of him, but I don't know him. Uh, uh, LBJ, all right. Hoover says, I saw him on TV the other night and he seemed to handle himself pretty well. Pretty soft-spoken. Do you know Boggs, Senator Hale Boggs? Yeah, I know him. He's offered the resolution to look into this. Well, I don't know about him either. And then LBJ, uh, I mean, it's like a love affair between LBJ and Hoover. Uh, LBJ, I tell you, I appreciate that. I I, I didn't ask because I know you know how to run your business better than anybody else. (laughs) Man,
0: what a joke.
2: And I just want to tell you, though, that we, we consider certain people of high class as you, and it's mighty gracious thing to do, we might be happy and salute you, knowing how to pick good men. The head of the FBI is basically gonna pick the people <laughs> on this particular uh, commission. Oh yeah. they- uh,
1: Mark, I, I don't want to uh, interrupt you, but we're gonna have you on for another show. And what we were thinking of is, is uh, once the commission is formed, and they do what they have to do, whether we agreed with or not, whoever's listening to us. You found an informant who was still alive. And this right. is the first in American history that this person has been spoken to. So what I'm suggesting is that we leave the show here All right. and we get into the informant for the entire second show. What do you think? Perfect. I'd
2: appreciate that. Thank you. OK,
1: uh, so it's been wonderful having you. You, you. You've opened our eyes to a lot of stuff.
2: But again, we're I mean,
1: Jesus. talking about what you're going to give us next week, so we uh, we would like everybody to come back. I mean, the people have, have to be glued to their uh, <laughs> to their phones listening to this. But next week is even going to be more eye opening. So I believe see. it is. Uh, we thank Mark Shore for this uh, enlightening hour, and we will see you next week.
0: Thank you again, so much, guys. Thank please. you. All right. Well, we'll be back next week, as we know, with Mark. So don't go anywhere. Tell your friends. And uh, he's got a lot of information that we should be knowing about going on with our lives to find out who's running this country and how the history, how bad it's been. And we've been told a bunch of lies, fortunately and unfortunately.
2: Yeah, And we'll we'll uh, we'll connect uh, Joe Biden into all of this. How about that?
0: Oh, good. I love it. <laughs> Not that he can remember anything, but. Uh,
1: oh, no. Oh. <laughs> Somebody, somebody told me today that uh, uh, Biden is going to get assassinated by slipping in the shower. <laughs> Which, uh, no,
2: no comment on that. Yeah, no comment.
1: very profound. Anyway, uh, once again, uh, uh, thank you, Mark. We'll see you next week.
0: Yes, you. thank you, guys. Everybody tune in, please. You can't okay. believe where this show's going to go. God bless you all. Have a safe week if you're feeling sad and lonely there's a service i could render i'm the one who loves you only i could be so warm so tender call me don't be afraid you can call me maybe it's late but just call me, Tell me thank you I'll for
1: tuning warm. in to the hollywood godfather podcast you can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself, Megan Haran, with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com, which is where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather and on Facebook, as well as leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your messages.
0: Don't be afraid you can call me. Maybe it's late, but just call me. Tell me and I'll be around. I'll be around.